Welcome to Prescribing Prosperity with your hosts, John and Alex Sutsos from MedWealth Financial Services, operating through IPC Securities Corporation. In this podcast, we provide unique insights into wealth management, the psychology of financial decisions, and help listeners place the capital markets into perspective. Our aim is to help physicians, business owners, and other medical professionals to live their dreams. Life is to live and enjoy, so we'll also cover health and lifestyle-related topics such as food, dining, travel, and unique experiences. Learn how global trends shape our investment strategy as we help you assemble your roadmap to prosperity. And welcome to the Prescribing Prosperity Podcast with your host, John and Alex Sitsos. As many of you know, at MedWealth Financial Services, John and Alex specialize in providing wealth management services to physicians, business owners, and medical professionals. In addition to discussing financial topics, they also enjoy lifestyle subjects, including food, health, and leisure. And this week, we are excited to discuss all things wine. Thank goodness. With our special guest, Gianluca DeLauro winemaker, sommelier, and territory sales manager at Lifford Wine and Spirits. Gianluca, welcome. Good to see you. Glad you could be here. Thanks for having me here. Really quickly, before I throw you to to the wolves, John and Alex, give us a really quick background. You came to Canada via Sicily, which seems an unlikely uh, journey. Sicily in uh, 2019, uh, roughly. I've been uh, here for almost four years now. Well, welcome. I'm going to let the guys get into the discussion about all things wine. And with that, John and Alex, I, I turn it over to you. All right. Thank you very much, Bill. John Luca, welcome. Thank you for uh, for joining us today. Thank you so, so much. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about your background. So obviously, Bill just gave us a, a brief introduction that uh, you joined us in Canada in, uh, in 2019, but tell us about your career, you know, how you got started in winemaking and uh, and what brought you eventually to Canada by way of uh, first Australia and then uh, eventually into uh, the Niagara and, uh, and BC regions. So basically started my career uh, uh, as a basically cellar hand in, uh, in Sicily. I did my first uh, two harvests there actually in, uh, in two wineries there while I was studying winemaking. And like I, I mentioned before, um, winemaking for me was almost an excuse uh, to explore a little bit more what than the island has to offer. Uh, so that's why I started studying winemaking going to Piedmont, which is already kind of like living the country for a Sicilian, uh, believe it or not. Uh, yeah. And then after I graduated in uh, Piedmont, I moved to uh, Lisbon. I got a, a master's degree in, uh, in winemaking there. And um, I went to work on my thesis in uh, Reims, which is a uh, uh, region in uh, in Champagne area, so I did my thesis on uh, alternative use of bentonite, which is a clay that's very useful for uh, protein stability in um, in uh, white wines, uh, production of Champagne, of course, as well. And after that, I moved to um, California for my first harvest, and I really liked nice. North America. Uh, like since always, uh, because I I I usually like basketball uh, fan. I used to follow NBA and uh, I, I love that North American culture as well. So I thought it was uh, a very interesting uh, new experience for me, other than just winemaking. 
So, John Luca, you came at the right year then if uh, you like basketball. I came uh, actually the perfect year. It was, uh, was actually insane because when I moved to um, San Francisco, uh, that was the year that uh, uh, the Golden State Warriors won the, the championship. And then I moved to Canada and the Raptors won. So, <laughs> 2019, that was a great year. Yeah. So, and, and I mean, it was the Raptors beat the Golden State Warriors. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun. In Golden State, too. They they closed down Oracle Arena. That was the last game ever played in Oracle Arena. Yeah, the so first, uh, the Raptors uh, won the championship there. The first game so, I've ever watched was uh, Golden State versus uh, uh, Los Angeles Lakers. So oh, that was wow. very nice. So you um, saw Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> no, Los Angeles Lakers, Dad. Oh, yeah. Kawhi sorry, didn't play yeah. for uh, uh, Yeah, Kawhi Clippers. hadn't left yet. LeBron would have been uh, who he was watching. That's great, John Luca. So, uh, so then after you uh, you were in uh, California. Uh, after that, what was your uh, what was your journey from there? So after California, I went to Australia. Uh, I was in uh, Perth, so Margaret River, uh, Western Australia. Uh, beautiful wine regions. Uh, lots of Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay uh, growing there. And then the reason why I moved to um, Canada is because I was studying for a, um, a wine course called uh, WSET. And the, there are different levels. And one of them, which is the last one, the level four, you can only take in certain major cities. And mm-hmm. one of these major cities is uh, here in Toronto. That's why I decided to move here. Okay. Very nice. And then uh, we met John Luca at uh, our golf club there was a wine and food night where they did they hosted a whole bunch of wine importers who came in brought some different wine selections for uh, everybody to sample as well as uh, hosting some uh, different food stations curated by the chef at our club and so John Luca was there and I happened to stumble across him and uh, got engaged in a nice long conversation my wife and I we both love uh, we both love wine and learning about wine and so it was great to talk with John Luca and as soon as uh, as soon as we left I said to my wife, I said, uh, we got to have him on the podcast once we get uh, up and running because he's going to be great. He knows he knows a lot, and I, I love to talk about wine, so it was a perfect match. You yes. traced me into it. I had no idea you had a podcast, though. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't started yet. We only launched uh, a couple of weeks ago, and so uh, it's still in its infancy, so you get to be one of our, our first lifestyle-related guests, or you are our, our first lifestyle-related guest. So uh, it's a big honor for you, John. Luke, I hope you know that. I appreciate it. I'm, uh, I'm very privileged. <laughs> so okay. tell us a little bit about uh, this season for uh, for wine. How were the temperatures this year, uh, specifically in the Niagara region? It was a bit of a cooler summer in, in the GTA. What was it like in Niagara? Yeah, it was uh, actually a pretty good uh, season, uh, to be honest. It's still going for most of the varieties. Uh, I believe uh, so far most wineries have only picked grape for uh, uh, tradition, like traditional metals sparkling or uh, these grapes need a little bit higher acidity. Uh, mm-hmm. But overall, I think it's been a really good harvest because a really good vintage because um, temperature have uh, been ranging between like 20 and 30 degrees, which is the perfect ripening temperature because above that, grapes kind of shut down and below that there is not much photosynthesis going on uh, so that's the perfect ripening range uh, grapes are a little bit more behind compared to like warmer vintage such as 2020 uh, but yeah it's been great so far we got some rain uh, as well uh, in the early stage uh, but now it seems to be uh, a couple of like longer days without rain so that should be 
pretty good for for the grapes this year. Perfect. And just before I, I turn it over to my dad, I just wanted to ask you. So, in terms of the harvesting season here in Ontario, I know in France, and the reason why I mentioned France is because Niagara is at the same level of uh, latitude as uh, as the French wine region, I believe Bordeaux specifically, if not uh, Burgundy, but. Uh, Actually, I think it might be Burgundy. Anyway, the reason why I asked is because I know in, in Burgundy, they harvest in August. So what is the traditional harvest season here in uh, Niagara, in Ontario? Well, it depends. Here, um, the, there are many factors that have an impact. And that's a very uh, different uh, uh, situation that, uh, in Europe uh, because here we have more a continental climate rather than a Mediterranean climate or even some main uh, mainland or inland regions in France uh, have some closer climate to here, uh, but the difference is essentially the varieties that they grow. Um, for example, in Burgundy, you have mostly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, almost exclusively Pinot Noir mm -hmm. and Chardonnay, which are early ripening varieties, which means that they genetically are designed uh, to ripe earlier. They need basically a, a, a to, need, they need to accumulate a little bit less heat uh, in order to be fully ripe. Uh, here we grow a little bit of everything. That's why our uh, ripening season is a little bit more extended. Uh, so we grow basically, and we're kind of blessed in Niagara because we're able to grow uh, anything from uh, Pinot Noir up until Cabernet Sauvignon, which is completely crazy if you think about it uh, in uh, in French, uh, like speaking about French region, right? Like France, mm -hmm. Cabernet Sauvignon in Bordeaux and Pinot Noir in Burgundy. I don't think there is a single vine of Cabernet Sauvignon growing in, in Burgundy. Yeah, it's sacrilegious to do anything but the, uh, the traditional methods in, uh, in Burgundy, that's for sure, in France in general. So I'll turn it over to Dad. Uh, go ahead, Dad. Well, it's been an interesting conversation so far. Uh, we want to get an idea, Gianluca. How, how, where do you hope to go with your career moving forward? Um, honestly, I, I get that question a lot, and I ask myself the same questions, but I still haven't come out with an answer. <laughs> um, That's okay. It, so you're taking it one day at a time. I think like I have many goals to what that I want to achieve, and the the main goal is to keep traveling uh, for sure. But I think I will stick around uh, for a while in Canada just because this place really offers a lot of opportunities. And I mean, wine-wise, that's basically a wine heaven here because you can really grow anything you want uh, and successfully. But do the do the Europeans recognize um, how good the Niagara wine region is? Or has it uh, found recognition yet in in Europe or or not yet? Unfortunately, I don't even think that Canadian recognize that uh, because um, the main thing I, uh, the main issue that I experience daily uh, when I visit restaurants is that ninety percent of the crowd hates uh, or like has uh, a really, um, a really bad reputation or a, a bad like image uh, of Niagara, and I really don't understand why uh, because, like. In any other region in the world, like we should be a lot like everyone is proud of their of their region of their wine, and uh, I think Niagara for sure is a young region, and probably um, winemakers tend to do a little too much in terms of uh, uh, what type of technique to use and how much ex uh, experimentation uh, there is going on here. But uh, 
definitely um and again, why has improved a lot, even in the past four years that I've been here, I saw so much improvement and evolution in, in wine. And I think Niagara is able to compete easily with any other wine region worldwide. We have today like really, really great winemakers and really great uh, grapes and wines here. We can really uh, compete with any other wine region worldwide. So what do you think needs to change here domestically for the Niagara wine region and perhaps other uh, wine regions in Canada, such as in BC, what what needs to change or how how how, how is the message going to get out that this is um, top quality, world-class uh, wine and wine growing here in Niagara? That's a, a very uh, interesting question. And uh, I think that there are two main things that need to change. Uh, one is uh, for sure being able to communicate wine better um, because I think that even if the wines are great, you have to be able to spend a little bit more time communicating them. And I think that happens uh, really, really well uh, in Niagara. I think um, all, the reg- all the region in Niagara is equipped uh, for wine tourism and there are a lot of tours going on and when tourists go to Niagara want to drink Niagara wines and it seems that when they come back to Toronto uh, everyone becomes a snobby and that's probably because uh, of the training of most of the sommelier uh, in, uh, in in this city uh, and that's something that unfortunately I see a lot uh, there is a, almost like bragging about uh, France and Italy. And I'm saying that as an Italian. I love Italian wines, uh, but I think there are certain wines in Niagara that are on par, if not better than most other Italians. So I think uh, we should have uh, a little bit more an open mind when we go to a restaurant and try uh, also Niagara wines. But also on the other side, uh, I think uh, that needs to be... um, uh, almost attributed to the winemakers because I think Niagara being uh, such a young wine region uh, needs definitely to have a little bit more focus on uh, producing actually classic wines, uh, which means wines that are clean uh, without anything funky going on. Fair, like you can experiment and you can do uh, things a little bit differently. Uh, but first, being a young, relatively young uh, wine region, you should be able to prove the word that you're also able to make serious wines. And by serious wines, I mean wine that are respectful of certain techniques where wines has been made for years. For example, using classic varieties and make them in a classic way, let's say, uh, Chablis style uh, Chardonnay or Bordeaux style Cabernet Sauvignon, Burgundy style uh, Gamay Noir. So wines that are respectful of also that heritage. Or I will never do uh, like sometimes I speak with winemakers and they are making crazy things uh, like I don't know skin contact Chardonnay aged in amphoras and then three months in barrel and five months in bottle and then i don't know like crazy stuff and i'm like dude what who are you trying to impress like that try to try to follow a logic right uh so like i think 
first of all, we should be able to prove uh, that we can make good wines and then we can we can try to reinvent the wheel. Otherwise, right. nobody taking you seriously or uh, it's going to be really tough for you to communicate that wine. Right? So, so establish the, the, the foundational... Yeah classic wines that have already been in production for uh, centuries and and then do something different is what you're essentially saying that's so uh, that's exactly i think whenever um i taste wine or whenever anyone tastes the wine and i'm able to blind taste it which means to understand what wine i'm drinking uh it's not because i'm a really good wine taster it's because the winemaker was good at communicating it and respect the variety making it able for the wine to get through your palate and actually communicate a territory, a region, or a style, right? Absolutely. I, I just want to chime in here, because, uh, and I definitely agree with what John Lucas is saying. Why don't you tell a story? And, and I think it's important that the wine is authentic to the story of the, of the region, like you said, as opposed to trying to be uh, at sometimes overly creative. Uh, I think one of the other issues with the Niagara wine region is because as with any wine region in its infancy, the wines are going to taste young. They're not going to taste the same quality as they are in a, in a region where the vines are more mature and are going deeper into the soil and therefore able to pull up more nutrients and more uh, and find greater flavor varieties because of the richness of the soil that they're reaching. So I think that's part of it. I think part of it too is the, to finish that point, the, the, the fact that they were young for a period of time. A lot of people have a, an impression built on Niagara wines based on that flavor profile that they tasted 10, 15 years ago and say, well, Niagara wines aren't any good. Well, they've, they've matured since then. It's not a static beast. It, it evolves. And so the, the quality of the Niagara vines have changed dramatically over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. And part of that is going to be a, a re-education process, like uh, John Luca mentioned through the sommeliers, because they're the ones who guide everybody to what wines to choose. And, you know, people tend to gravitate towards the ones that they know. They know that France is a great wine producing region. They've been doing it for centuries. Same thing with Italy. Same thing with Spain. Like you're going to, you're going to gravitate towards those because you know that those are the high quality producers. And it's up to the sommeliers to guide the uh, wine consumers to say, it's not just these, it's the Niagara wines are excellent quality too. I think the other component that, uh, that needs to evolve is the uh, is the distribution you know a lot of times the the best wines in niagara are the ones that come from the smaller producers and so the smaller producers when they go to distribute their wines because they don't meet the requirements of the lcbo which is the distribution uh, channel within ontario for liquor and uh, and wine uh, as well as beer uh, although there's also the beer store the lcbo has certain requirements for production quantity and so a lot of the better wine producers, because they don't have the capacity or the, the volume to be able to meet those requirements, don't actually retail through the LCBO. And so the education suffers as so a result. John, People aren't able to try the best wines in, uh, in Niagara because they're not available at the LCBO. You need to actually go to the, the vineyards or, or join a wine club in order to be able to John Lu- those wines. Gianluca, what are your thoughts on uh, the comments Alexander has been making for the last couple of minutes? No, it makes total sense, and uh, I completely agree with him. Um, you know, and also the reason why most smaller producers are not at the LCBO is because LCBO charges crazy amount of taxes on it, uh, and that's why it's kind of discouraging uh, for uh, a winemaker that or a, a small producer that wants to like expand his uh, audience. Uh, and honestly, it's not even uh, convenient because if uh, you already pay roughly thirty percent of taxes selling direct to consumer uh but if you have to sell to the lcbo 
it's something stupid. It's like I'm talking about like 40% or more, 50%. I'm not exactly sure how much, but definitely it doesn't appeal uh, anyone to to give 50% of the profit. Uh, so, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I, I just um, I'm shaking my head while you're speaking. I'm thinking, boy, there's news. We are overtaxed here in Ontario and Canada. <laughs> uh, especially where southern ontario right yes yeah southern ontario yes for sure yeah we'll, we'll get more into the the distribution side and uh in a yeah so so to, uh, um so luca we know a little bit uh alexander knows more than i do uh, but tell us about becoming a sommelier uh what's involved in the education process how many tiers or levels of sommelier are there so uh becoming a sommelier uh it's um it's like you can really follow many many different paths uh you can uh i would say the most common two are internationally uh cms and uh using wsct uh which is cms is a court of master sommelier and uh, WCT uh, is basically uh, Wine and Spirit Educational Trust. Uh, so these are two different uh, paths, I will say. Uh, but basically, uh, what you do with CMS, uh, it's more CMS is more based on service focused, I will say. Uh, while like WCT is more um, marketing and production focused. So when you uh, talking about um, CMS, we are talking about like four tiers. There is introduction, there is a certified sommelier, there is advanced, and there is master sommelier. Uh, while with WSCT, there are uh, also four tiers, first, second, third, and level four or diploma. Uh, and basically, uh, the main difference, I will say, is CMS, uh, other than focusing mainly on service, it's uh, mostly self-study, uh, while uh, WSET, um, you can actually participate to classes. Uh, the first and second level, I don't think there are any classes. Uh, the level three and level four are a little bit more intense. Level four lasts uh, two years, uh, so it's it's pretty intense. And it's, I would say, comparable to the CMS advanced level, which will be the third level for uh, Coral Master Sommelier. But then there are many other uh, ways to become a sommelier. There are sommelier that uh, have been just practicing and studying independently uh, without following on doing, taking any exam, uh, but they've been working in restaurants for the whole life. Uh, or there are other probably regional, if we can call them that way, wine uh, courses. Uh, like so, university. So, so which path have you been following? I did WSCT, um, so I just finished my diploma. Actually, uh, can you elaborate on what those uh, that acronym means? Uh, WSCT means uh, Wine and Spirit Educational Trust, and it's okay. a, a London-based uh, school, but it's international, so it's worldwide. Okay. So I did WCT and uh, I actually applied for uh, the MW program, which will be the Master of Wine program. That's um, basically also UK-based school, a London-based school, uh, and mm -hmm. that's comparable in terms of uh, uh, difficulty, I would say, to uh, the last level of the Court of Master Sommelier, which is becoming a Master Sommelier or a Master of Wine. So how many levels are there? 
is four per each. So four for uh, CMS and four for uh, WSCT. And and what does CMS stand for? Court of Master Sommelier. Okay. What level are you at presently? Uh, so I just finished the the diploma path. Uh, so <clears throat> I applied for Master of Wine now, which is uh, basically other three years program. Uh, so if everything goes well, which it's almost impossible uh, <laughs> for everything to go well the first attempt. Uh, consider that I think the pass rate is less than 1%. So are you ta- which level are you referring to? Uh, that's the Master of Wine, which comes after the WSCT diploma. Okay, but are there, you, said, you said there's four levels, right? Yeah, Master of Wine is, I will say, a fifth level, but it's not oh. the WSCT. Uh, it's a different school, but you need to have at least the diploma to be able to access that. Right. Okay. So would you say you're qualified at the fourth level at the present time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you're you're very advanced at this point. I will say, yeah, I'm up there. <laughs> okay. And 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 the uh, now explain the the uh, uh, how. How sensitive your taste buds need to be in order to be able to uh, to pass the highest level? Honestly, I don't think um, at all that is. I have a special sensitivity. Uh, I think anyone can become a great wine taster, um, but it's more um, based on how much knowledge you have um, and how much theory you actually know. Like you could possibly taste blindly a wine without ever having ever tried wine before or even ever tried that wine before. I mean, if you think about it, there are so many wines and it's almost impossible for a sommelier to try them all. Uh, but if you know what uh, a Pinot Noir from Burgundy is supposed to taste like, uh, you are able to identify that in the glass uh, almost certainly. Uh, it's a little bit more tough to identify uh, what producer. Uh, it's almost impossible to identify what producer because there are many variables that take place in making wine, right? Uh, maybe the winemaker was feeling uh, extra generous that year and add a little bit more barrel in the blend. You know what I mean? Uh, but uh, overall, mm-hmm. it's um, it's pretty easy uh, to to taste wine and kind of identify what the wine is uh, just by having a really uh, wealthy knowledge of uh, or like background of that region. Uh, That's pretty much like the approach that uh, most sommelier use when they do a blind tasting, which is almost um, incorrect to talk about blind tasting because it should be called more like deductive tasting uh, just because when you taste a wine and you're trying to figure out what you're tasting, uh, you basically go, or you should go through a process of exclusion. So basically you say, which grapes have, uh, first of all, you you look at the wine, right? So uh, you basically, when I whenever I taste a wine, um, I, I, I go through a process that's basically uh, sight, nose, and palate. So the side gives you certain information, the nose gives you other, and the palate gives you other more. So if you if you first assess the side, <clears throat> sorry, uh, if you first assess the side uh, of a wine, you're like, oh, this wine is powerful in you. 
which grapes have purple color. And you think about Malbec, so it can be uh, Pinot Noir, it can be uh, Nebbiolo. Uh, so you go through the second step, which is the nose, which wine tends to smell like flower, and you can eliminate a bunch of other grapes, which wines they have really rich tannins. So at the end, you narrow it down to two or three varieties. And then, Productive reasoning. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot easier than uh, it looks. Like nobody has a magic palette. Of course, your palate and your brain uh, tend to associate certain flavor with certain areas, certain wines, and you can train that. Uh, you can become slightly more sensitive, uh, but it's mostly uh, like if you don't have the 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 theory of the theoretical background you can taste wine all day for 100 years you still won't be able to figure out what it is right right that makes sense now john luca i wanted to uh to ask you a question about uh, about your own wine so i know in the past you've worked as a winemaker do you, do you currently have your own label that you're producing or is the production that you're working on right now uh, through your consulting business where you're consulting with other wineries on their, uh, on their so, labels? So um, right now I, I'm basically producing my first vintage this year uh, and I'm making um, a Chablis style Chardonnay, uh, uh, fresh, crispy, ISVDD. Uh, but uh, no, it's, it's not out yet. Hopefully we'll be ready probably end of February, uh, March, 2024. Okay, excellent. So a little bit more mineral than the uh, strictly buttery Chardonnay that uh, we tend to get a lot it of times. It will be a lot of uh, mineral, uh, fresh, uh, high acid, and it will see. We'll see if I if I go through malolactic conversion or not, uh, because that kind of gives that right. butteriness and creaminess other than the barrel aging. Yeah. But I don't think I'm going to use any any barrel. So you think you'll go with a stainless steel aging as opposed to a barrel age? Nice, excellent. Well, we've uh, kind of dovetailed nicely into our next topic, which is specifically about production in uh, in Ontario. So you've touched already a little bit on the temperature requirements that we need to have in order to produce wine in Ontario. That being, you know, between 20 and 30 degrees Celsius is the optimal temperature range. What are the other important factors that uh, that play into good wine production? I know, you know, soil is one, water uh, or rainfall, I should say. Why don't you elaborate a little bit on uh, on some of those? Yeah, factors? I would say the most important too, which, uh, yeah, like you mentioned, the uh, soil definitely plays a role. Temperature needs to be around 20, 30. Uh, but what matters more than temperature is something called GDD or like growing degree days, which, uh, which essentially is a measurement of the heat um, accumulation that, uh, that is required for every specific grape. Uh, to achieve ripening, a full ripening, uh, right? So that's something that it's very, uh, it's almost mandatory uh, for a wine for a wine region to be able to call itself a wine region. And another thing is water, uh, which means a certain amount of precipitation uh, per year, roughly around 750 uh, minimum uh, for grapevine for Vitis vinifera, uh, and uh, in in. Ontario, we have plenty. We have probably uh, a thousand to twelve hundred millimeters of rain per year. Uh, so that's why um, wow. it's almost too much, um, and uh, that's why the base best soil are soils in here in Ontario where you have uh, a lot of sand, uh, where the sand component is a it's a big plays a big part because uh, sand allows 
free draining, right? So allows uh, the roots not to be stuck underwater and have a little bit more oxygen, uh, allows also uh, better uh, the organic matter to be mineralized, which basically means oxidized and being actually available for the roots to have access to. And that's what uh, that's why most people uh, talk, speak highly about the uh, bench area. Uh, there are two, I will say, main sub-region within Niagara. Uh, there are uh, the bench area, or uh, closer to like the escarpment, and the Niagara on the lake. Uh, Niagara on the lake is definitely more flat, uh, but luckily uh, for them, it's a little bit uh, more sandy in general. And then there is the bench, which is a little bit more hilly um, and uh, a little bit higher altitude, uh, roughly. Um, and uh, this is also very important because one of the main problems, um, I will say, in Niagara is that we're almost too blessed because uh, there is uh, everywhere it's flat, right? And when you have flatlands, you all the organic matter that even falls, there is no erosion, basically. Uh, so you have a lot of fertility, very fertile soil, the shift that bind balance from um, ripening towards more vegetation phase. So doing that, basically, vines almost delay their ripening because tend to produce a lot, a lot of leaves, a lot of the vegetation, rather than focusing on actually ripening the grapes. And that's something that needs to be uh, understood. And that's probably one of the main challenges because, yeah, for sure, as a, as a grape grower, you have the potential to ripe a lot of grapes uh, in terms of quantity, but the quality is also re related to that. So if you want to make high-quality wine, you have to understand that you need to renounce to quantity and focus on ripening uh, a little bit less uh, grapes. If you think about it, um, all the best wine region in the world are region with very, very poor soils because when the vines struggle to ripe or to, uh, sorry, not struggle to ripe, when the ripe, um, when the grapes struggle to uh, access the nutrients and the water that they need, they tend to uh, produce smaller berries, which this has a huge impact because smaller berries means that the skins, which is the part of the berry that has all the novel substances uh, that are important for wine flavor, all the anthocyanins or the tannins, uh, the ratio between uh, the skin and the pulp, which is basically just sugar and water, uh, it's very, very high. Uh, so that's why you have very flavorful wine in very poor soil. And that's why the biggest mistake you can do in most uh, areas. Now, I don't want to generalize because there is also patches when you have like lack of nutrients uh, in Niagara. But the, usually the biggest mistake uh, that you can do is irrigate to try to produce more and fertilize because you're just going to delay ripening and risk then you not have to, not to having enough time or enough heat in the fall to bring ripening to to completion to finish ripening right John Luca so, and, sorry and to that's why Alexander I, I just he, he triggered a thought to me how do, how does the soil in Niagara compare to a place like Bordeaux which also gets a lot of rain it's uh it's there, Niagara has a very different uh, um, uh, soil, uh, like in, in their different regions. Uh, like I said, 
Uh, Niagara on the Lake tends to be uh, very sandy, at least the vineyards where I've been working. Uh, there is actually a specific um, winery, a specific plot on that winery. Uh, and I can't even mention the, the winery really friend with uh, the owners there I sell, uh, from Ice Cellars. They have a crazy um, uh, spot with red sand and they grow Cabernet Sauvignon there. Uh, while there's a little bit more clay in um, uh, in the bench area, um, so that's uh, that's an area where temperature tend to be and climate in general like tends to be a little bit cooler. Not only because um, is uh, at higher altitude, but also clay uh, implies that water is retained a lot more than sand, and water slows down. Um, change in temperature in the soil uh, because if you think about it when there is a lot of porosity uh, in the soil you have a lot of uh, air going through and air warms up and cools down a lot faster than water just because it's less dense uh, so the same happens in uh, in the bench that's why also the varieties that are grown in the bench are generally different uh, than uh, the varieties and can you contrast that with bordeaux What's the, what's the situation there? Well, Bordeaux, uh, also you have right bank and left bank, right? Uh, so in the left bank, uh, you have uh, a lot more, uh, uh, a lot more like Merlot, more clay based. Uh, while in the um, uh, right bank, sorry, uh, the opposite way, uh, you have um, a lot more Cabernet Sauvignon in sand, right? Uh, in Medoc, for example. Uh, so that's why Cabernet Sauvignon is a more exigent variety in terms of heat so you need a lot more sand to ripe Cabernet Sauvignon uh, compared to uh, Pomerol for example uh, where you grow mostly Merlot and that's more like clay-based soil because Merlot is an earlier ripening variety so you need less heat uh, both in the air I would say outside the, 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 the soil and underground in the roots. Thank you. So you, uh, so so Cap Franc and uh, and Pinot Noir would be more are, are generally more uh, growable on the bench. They they turn out better on the exactly, bench than yeah. they do in, uh, in that heat. Yeah, yeah. So that uh, that's all uh, fascinating, John Luca. Because I was also going to mention, you, you know, you talked a little bit about the fact that irrigation is a is a big is a big challenge when it comes to uh, to producing the wines. You know, in France, for example. Uh, uh, you touched a little bit upon it. They don't. They don't allow any irrigation. It all is natural rainfall, so that way they force the the vines to struggle and dig deeper into the earth in order to find more nutrients and more more water underneath instead of relying on uh, on surface water. Talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, uh, how rain impacts the the harvesting season because obviously you don't want to uh, pick right after uh, right after rainfall. But do you mind explaining why that is? Well, um, rain is. Um, it's a, it can be an issue uh, during harvest. Like obviously, you don't want to pick uh, during uh, rain just because, or like right after the rain, because you tend to have a little bit lower bricks. Uh, bricks uh, is essentially the amount of sugar uh, that uh, ninety percent of the world uses established when uh, grapes are uh, ready to be picked. And if you have water uh, just on the on the canopy or on the on the bunches obviously you're gonna dilute the sugar content which is gonna uh, basically give you as a result a lower sugar uh, level and a lower alcohol content in the in the wine um, 
But in general, um, I wouldn't be too worried about that stage because uh, that's basically like towards the end of harvest. You can just wait one day and pick uh, after one the grades yeah. are ripe. But what's very, very dangerous is if um, you already have some uh, mildew and towards the end of the ripening where the skins are very soft and more rain is just going to make things worse, right? You're just waiting for the grapes to ripe and more rain will just feed uh, the mildew and reduce the overall quality of the of the product. And, and part of the reason why you want to ensure that you don't have too much vegetation, right? Because you don't want you don't want it to be too shady because you need the the sun exposure in order to prevent mold and mildew from uh, from developing on the uh, on the surface of the grapes. Totally. Uh, you need airflow and uh, one other thing that I always tell uh, vine growers here, um, the worst thing possible you can do in Niagara uh, is also use herbicide uh, because the best friend you should consider uh, here to have is uh, grass, uh, especially if you don't have grass, just use cover crops uh, because grass uh, it almost works as a buffer uh, not only with water right when you have excessive water this water instead of going uh, to be absorbed by the vines and increase the lie which is the leaf area index so the amount of leaves and vegetation that you have if you have grass grass is going to take care of it right so you almost work with the perfect balance and competes with the with the vines creating that competition that's going to eventually Enhance, um, it's going to eventually um, enhance uh, the ripening process. Uh, but if you don't have that, right. uh, then it's going to be a lot less balanced. Moreover, um, when you have grass, uh, you have more biodiversity. And this is also uh, very important because biodiversity allows you to host uh, insects that are predators of many other pests. Uh, so you basically have full control of the vineyards by itself instead of needing to use extra insecticide or like there is almost no need of using insecticide in Niagara, but most yeah. people still do it. Uh, I guess the the sales rep for insecticide are really good at sales, but <laughs> absolutely it's no required yeah and i think that's uh that's one big difference between the old world and the new world is the prevalence of uh, pesticides and insecticides uh and their utilization here relative to places like italy and france but uh, i'll ask you one last question john luca before we're going to move over to uh to buying why i'm going to turn it over to my dad um my last question was just going to be are we seeing any any trends in winemaking anything that is uh current in terms of the use of uh, of different winemaking processes, uh, you know, fermentation, barrel usage, barrel aging. Uh, is there anything in particular that we're seeing as a current trend right now, either in Canada or abroad? Uh, what I've seen and what I've noticed a lot that uh, is there, uh, there is a, almost a return to like likely to um, less uh, alcoholic wines. Like the wines that probably sell the least are fortified wines, such as port uh, and uh, there is a lot more attention uh, or uh, wines. The most required wines are the ones with low sugar content. Uh, I will say almost like people are trying to look for healthier wines uh, lately, um, if we can call them that way. Um, so 
that's the main the main uh, trend I would say in the market, uh, and that brings uh, uh, like to answer your question in terms of winemaking technique uh, means in order to have uh, less sweet wine uh, or less alcoholic wines, uh, you need to pick relatively early. Uh, so that's like the picking time is really uh, a big thing in winemaking. I will say. 60-70% of a wine uh, quality is, uh, it depends by when you pick the grapes. Uh, so you have to really uh, focus on that if you want to make a specific wine because picking the grape at the right time doesn't only give you um, a wine with a certain amount of alcohol, but what's more important is the amount of acidity that you have. And at the end of the day, uh, a, wine, um, a, a wine needs to be balanced. Uh, it doesn't need to be with 16, 17% of alcohol, but no acidity. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It matters how balanced it is, uh, that wine. So you always want to look for a uh, great flavor component, uh, decent okay. amount, and uh, high acidity in order to be balanced. That, that, that's, uh, that's really uh, valuable information for people who have not spent as much time learning about wine as as you have obviously most uh, most people's experiences with wine have to do with walking into the LCBO here in Ontario or an independent liquor store in other parts of the world uh, what things should people look for when they they're trying to determine if a wine is good or not well it's uh, unfortunately it's always uh, it's always tough to, to judge a wine by the label, right? Almost, uh, I would say. Uh, but uh, there are certain things that you could uh, use as clue uh, to understand what what would be a great uh, a great choice. Um, first of all, it depends like what kind of event uh, you're buying the wine for. And then there are certain wines that I think um, are usually a safe uh, buy. Uh, when I'm talking about safe buy, I'm talking about wines that are classics. Uh, so wines that at least have an appellation, uh, in the, in their, uh, in their label, uh, such as I'm talking about, uh, Barolo or Barbaresco or, um, Loire or any, any sort of appellation. Normally you understand that the wine, uh, not because it comes from that appellation, but because at least uh, you know that in order to make that wine, uh, the winemakers has to stick to certain type of rules, right? Uh, so that would be relatively safe. But also other things that you can evaluate when you're purchasing wine is uh, price point. Um, not doesn't mean necessarily doesn't necessarily mean that a wine that is um, expensive more expensive than another is better than the other because uh, you have to understand that certain wines have in certain region a different um, price point for certain uh, specific reason right uh, for example uh, in order to drink really good uh, napa cabernet sauvignon uh, you really cannot spend 40 dollar you have to spend a lot more uh, in general but you can get with $40 an amazing, I don't know, Aligoté from uh, from Burgundy, uh, just because they're very different wines. And um, a lot of people are more familiar with Napa Cabernet Sauvignon. And I think also these brings the price up, 
other than other many other reasons. Uh, so, so Gian, Gianluca, the what would you, which particular region do you think offers uh, people the best value for buying wine? Well, um, the best value uh, definitely Spain. Uh, probably, probably Spain. Yeah. Uh, but, um, I mean, we're talking about Rioja. There are certain like Rioja that I don't even know why they sell it for like $25, $30. And they're really, really, uh, wines. So, uh, I, that's probably high <laughs> in terms of price. Uh, what, what, and, and aged Riojas too. Like we're not talking about, you know, a, a five-year-old Rioja. Like you can go to the LCBO and you can probably buy a, a 20 year, 20 year old Rioja for like $30. So it's, uh, it offers some great opportunity uh, Cava, for sure. Uh, for me, it's it's an insane Cava or Trento Doc. Uh, there, are, these are like certain like traditional methods, sparkling wine that can easily compete with uh, with champagne, and they're a tenth of the price uh, most of the time. What are your three uh, top uh, three favorite regions to buy wine from? Three favorite regions. That's uh, that's a really tough question. Uh, question uh, probably I will say Barolo I will say Etna I love Etna Bianco uh, which is basically I will call I call it the Chablis of Sicily it's high acidity fresh crispy and it's only made uh, Etna Bianco Superiore uh, it's only made in a specific city uh, called Milo which is a super tiny village uh, and uh, I I would love to drink Burgundy every night, but it's too expensive for me. <laughs> okay, so so the so so That's the right. argument is settled. Two out of three are Italian, so the Italian region is the best <laughs> wine region in the world. Is that what you're saying? I'm not saying that. Not saying that. <laughs> we we have family members who who uh, who have this argument from Italy, saying uh, we're better than the, than the French. No, 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 no. Anyway. Um, so uh, what are tannins? We hear this word tannins. What are tannins and how do they affect the wine consumption experience? Well, tannins are um, basically in like very simple word. They're just uh, uh, polymeric uh, phenolic compounds. They're literally molecules that are able to polymerize, which means are able to uh, bind other molecules. They're able to bind um, each other. And amongst the uh, molecules that are able to bind, uh, there are proteins, right? And uh, the reason why uh, they produce a, a, cer a certain effect uh, in our palate is because they're, um, they cause the drying sensation or the astringent sensation, which is essentially then buying the proteins in our saliva the enzymes in our saliva and precipitate them so that's why they create that uh, drying uh, sensation uh, so is that a good sensation to have when drinking wine well uh it's uh it is it's part of the the, the texture of the wine it gives a mouthfeel uh, to red wine uh basically tannins are found in uh, only certain parts of the of the grapes they're found in, into the skins they're found into the um, uh, seeds and they're found into the stems so you won't have uh tannins in white wine unless that white wine has been uh in, in contact with the skin but that doesn't really happen other than orange wine uh, or few extra uh, like few exclusive uh situation 
but other than that, you won't have tannins in white wines. But in red wine, it's tannins are basically uh, a very important component of uh, of the of the of the wine itself. Like uh, there are certain uh, uh, grapes that are actually famous for their tannins. Uh, for example, Sagrantino in Italy is one of the most tannic uh, varieties uh, in in the world, and also Nebbiolo is very very tannic. Tannins also allow wine to stabilize their color because tannins are able to bind anthocyanins, which are basically very similar molecules to tannins, and they're able to... These are all healthy ingredients. I know all these names, anthocyanins. That's, uh, that's what gives the reddish, purplish, bluish colors in fruit. These these are all uh, good antioxidants. They're giving us a reason to drink more wine. It's also a, a byproduct, and uh, John Luca can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm not mistaken, it's a byproduct of uh, skin fermentation in order to give color to the wine. So, like, for example, Cabernet Sauvignon is a red skin but white flush, and so in order to get the reddish hue in the in the red wine, they skin ferment. Is that correct, uh, John Luca? So every, every single red wine is produced with a process called um, maceration, right, or pump over uh, or uh, punch downs. Basically, pump over or punch downs are just techniques they're uh, meant to extract the anthocyanins, so the coloring matter of, of the skins. And you extract that with pump over, which means pumping over the juice from the bottom of the tank to the top where the cap is. The cap is basically where all the skins are uh, found during fermentation, just because CO2 brings them up. And um, also temperature and ethanol, so alcohol, allows uh, works as a solvent, right? Extracting the color from the skins. And that's how um, you have the creation of a red wine as opposed to a white wine from red grapes. For example, if you think about champagne, a lot of like Blanc de Noir, it's made by separating the skins from Pinot Noir right away uh, instead of macerating it, right? Uh, just very quickly, uh, we're, we're trying to be sensitive to time. I, I have a couple of questions that the average people have average people I include me in that group um what uh, decanting a bottle of wine uh, how long should a person decant a bottle of wine and to follow up on that uh why do some wines give people headaches so decanting a bottle of wine it's rarely necessary uh, to be honest uh obviously like it's part of the experience when you go to a restaurant, but very few wines need to be decanted. Uh, old wines or wines that have been bottled for a very long time usually need some decanting, uh, but uh, I wouldn't say more than like 30 minutes. Uh, also because like when you're uh, in a restaurant, you don't really want to wait an hour or two for uh, in order to enjoy a bottle. Uh, and... Uh, Usually, if a wine uh, it needs to be decanted, which means has a little bit of a stinky nose, uh, just because it's been in a reductive environment for a very long time. Reductive environment means beside, basically inside the bottle with lack of oxygen. You almost have that like rotten eggs type of aroma. So that's due to sulfuric compounds that develop in certain uh, conditions. So once you decant that, quickly you're going to have uh, the wine breathe, uh, right? And gives you uh, that normal aroma, I would say, uh, after you decant it. But very few wines need that process. And um, the other question, um, 
the headache? Why do why do some wines give people headaches? What causes headache is essentially sugar and alcohol. Uh, sugar because it creates uh, changes in your quick changes in your blood pressure and. Uh, the second one, ethanol, uh, it's toxic, right? Uh, so if you drink more than a bottle, you're most likely going to have an headache, but not because the wine is bad or the sulfide. There are a few people that are that have problems with sulfur. They're allergic to sulfide, but it's a really small amount of the population. I see. I, and uh, are older bottles of wine better than younger bottles of wine? Uh, no, not all the time. Uh, not in most cases, no. I think uh, most wines are really good to be drunk between five and 10 years uh, of their making. Uh, certain wines can age or can change their flavor profile and their mouthfeel over time. But in general, uh, I wouldn't age a wine longer than 20 years, even if it's one of the best uh, Barolo or like uh, Bordeaux or any other tannic uh, wine. That's great. Thank you. All right. Uh, so we're just going to uh, we're going to discuss a little bit about consuming wine. Obviously, the <laughs> best part of wine, uh, Gianluca. <laughs> so uh, one of the greatest experiences I had with wine was uh, my wife and I. We were in New York City. Uh, it was probably about five years ago, and uh, and we went to a, a guided wine tasting with a sommelier, and he uh, and they had about five or six bottles that they opened up for us. And what they did was uh, with each wine, you know, he let us smell it and he let us taste it. And then he asked us, you know, what do you smell? What do you taste? And then uh, people would provide their input. And then he would respond and say, well, do you notice this? Or have you, do you taste a little bit of this in the wine? And if you taste it on different parts of your tongue, how does that impact the flavor? And it was a, a very eye-opening experience for, for both of us to, to have that type of expertise. And so obviously not everyone has the benefit of tasting with the sommelier. So give us a, a couple of quick tips, if you don't mind, about uh, what the best process is people should follow for tasting wine in order to maximize their enjoyment. Well, um, so normally uh, what I'll say is that uh, whenever I'm enjoying a bottle of wine, I don't really taste it uh, because I, I do that for work most of the time. Uh, but what I'm saying uh, with that is like tasting um, as a, a proper technique, uh, which means literally um, separating the wine almost into its components, uh, which are basically side, nose, and palate. So the color, uh, the aromas, and the flavors in the palate. Um, but they're all related to each other. But definitely uh, what um, someone can do is, and I, I think that's why, uh, that's what a sommelier should do, and that's why a wine, what a wine educator should do, should try to guide um, the person that's first approaching the wine towards a better understanding uh, of what he can find in that wine. And uh, one of the most, the coolest thing I've uh, noticed uh, doing wine tasting with other people, with other consumers is um, try to point out what, why that wine is special for. For example, if you're trying uh, Syrah from uh, Northern Rhone, something that you can point out is black pepper aroma. Almost always you have black pepper aroma. And when you mentioned that, you already uh, highlight that type of feature in that wine. And uh, 
the consumer uh, or the non-trained person uh, is able to pick that up. And I guarantee you, they will never forget that. Uh, when you're tasting uh, a Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand, most of the time you have guava or passion fruit aroma. And that's uh, something that it's the process of association that you can do uh, repetitively and um, you can uh, kind of like get a feel for that and be like become like almost um, uh, used to it. So that's something that uh, enhances definitely the experience of, uh, of wine tasting. Uh, I find it very, very uh, interesting and a lot of people reaction when I mention um, like it doesn't really matter to mention or uh, list. 50 uh, descriptors in a wine and there is no right or wrong uh, up to a certain limit, of course. Uh, but uh, normally, uh, there are, that's what I find really interesting. Like when you're enjoying uh, some wine, uh, highlighting uh, certain features that wine should be known for, should be known for, that's something mm -hmm. that really helps to make uh, a, a really better experience. For sure. So I, I want to ask one last question because uh, I want to save time for uh, our last topic, which is uh, importing wine. And that's obviously something that's near and dear to your heart. Uh, but before we get to that, I just wanted to ask you, how does how, how does food pairings or how do food pairings as well as glassware uh, impact the the experience and the flavor of the wine when you're consuming it? Does glassware really matter in terms of uh, drinking it out of uh, you know a red wine glass or a a white wine glass or ones that are specific to certain grape varietals? And then uh, a follow-up to that is how does food pairing uh, go with I wine? I think uh, um, glasses do uh, matter uh, just because, first of all, like drinking a good wine in a, in a good glass uh, gives dignity to, to the product. And uh, I mean, uh, winemakers spend uh, years to, to build that up. So why would you not appreciate that and uh, uh, drink it in a glass? Up or yeah. uh, even worse in ISO glass. <laughs> um, oh. So I, I think that's very important. Uh, but also, uh, certain uh, glasses are meant for certain wines because wines have aromas that are essentially volatile molecules, and uh, they uh, they have different weights uh, in terms of actually molecular weights. So certain molecules are heavier than others. And um, um, when you, for example, swirl a, a wine, the point of swirling a wine in a glass is to be able to push out of the glass um, heavier molecules that otherwise you wouldn't be able to smell. And there are studies that prove that these uh, specific shape of glasses are able to enhance aromatic compounds in the in the wines so yes uh i will say definitely uh, wine glasses matter and uh, uh, the other question the food and wine pairing uh that's a totally uh other word like we have uh, it's uh, we could we could spend talking about uh this in in our podcast for for years for ages <laughs> okay We'll save that for your for your return uh, for your return appearance uh, on the podcast, uh, Gianluca. How about that? We can do we can do a whole podcast on just wine. Let's and food. do that. <laughs> okay. All right. Sounds good. So, uh, Dada, I'll uh, leave it to you then to uh, talk okay, about. Okay. So, wine. Uh, outside of the LCBO, one of the primary methods of purchasing wine is through an importer such as yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about Lyford Wine and Spirits and how your business works? 
Uh, so uh, Lifford uh, is basically um, an import agency. Uh, Lifford, we what we do is we import wine from a little bit everywhere uh, in the world. We have a, a huge uh, portfolio. It's actually the biggest um, consignment portfolio in uh, Ontario, uh, which means most of our wines are not found in the LCBO. And what I really like about Lifford is that all our wines are uh, very classic and clean. Um, and uh, we have a lot of really iconic uh, producers. And uh, what we do is basically we uh, import uh, these wine gems and we distribute them uh, to both prior consumers, uh, to hotels and restaurants. And uh, my role basically there is mostly sales. Uh, so I, I have probably the dream job of uh, any wine lover, which is going around uh, restaurants and uh, enjoy wines with the restaurant managers or sommeliers and chefs. And so, uh, it sounds like a very good business. Don't don't talk about it too much because then Alexander's going to leave my practice and come join you. <laughs> hey, Alexander, I'd be happy to work yeah. with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sounds good, John. Look, I'll yeah, forward you my uh, resume. Uh, John Luca Lifford, uh, you said it imports wines from all over the world. Does that include Greece? I've heard that Greece is uh, an up and coming wine region. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, Greece is way more than an up-and-coming. Greece is where uh, basically, I will say, wine was born almost. Uh, I mean, the grape uh, were like grape, like winemaking almost like was born in like the Caucasus. So, and then like he moved towards Greece and then from there he moved to Sicily and to uh, North Italy. And then finally uh, he made it to France. Uh, but yeah, Greece is a lot more than an up and coming. I, I love Greek wines. Uh, I love Assyrtiko. Uh, and, uh, there, there are so many, uh, Vinsanto too. Like it's, Greece is an insane, uh, place for, uh, for great words. You know, Mavro, it's basically a cheaper, uh, Barolo. Uh, it's, it, it's, it tastes really, really good. And actually, uh, in one of my exams, I was so disappointed because I was, uh, I blind tasted as, you know, Mavro and I called it Barolo. And that was my first time, the first time in my life really? I did Barolo. I was wow. like, I, I never, I never felt that. And, uh, Zino Mavro had me fooled. <laughs> Zino Mavro. Well, John, look, I, I hope you know I'm, I'm now going to need a bottle of wine because my dad's never going to let this go that uh, Greece is now also the birthplace of <laughs> well, wine in addition I to everything else. I already knew that, but I had to have Alexander oh. uh, hear it from the from an expert. <laughs> it was the ancient Greeks who planted the vines in France. And uh, even uh, in Sicily, uh, there, is a, there is a lot of history of, uh, of Greek. There is an, an island called Mosia. Uh, that I believe that's a Greek uh, settlement, and there are a lot of amphoras there, and a lot of uh, uh, Greek vessels. Uh, it's insane uh, place. Maybe one day when you guys come visit me in Sicily, I'll uh, I'll take you there. Oh, that sounds that sounds fantastic! And then you you've piqued my curiosity. Very quickly, how long can wine be stored for to reach its peak? Uh, it depends what wine. Uh, I will say, uh, if we are talking about white wines, other than uh, a few uh, wines like Rieslings uh, or a few Chardonnay, I wouldn't age uh, any white uh, too long, especially aromatic wines. Um, if we're talking about red wines, 
Uh, it depends by what variety and what quality level. Uh, if we're talking about uh, really uh, tannic uh, varieties, uh, such as uh, Sagrantino, Ianico, uh, which is Tarasi, basically, which is a region in Campania, or we're talking about some Bordeaux or Barolo, uh, these I wouldn't age longer than 20 years. Definitely will benefit from 10 years aging, uh, but between the window, the drinking window is between 10 and 20 years. Uh, also because uh, all of these wines are tend to be corked, um, and by corked mean they tend to have cork, natural cork closure, uh, which allows a little bit of oxygen uh, access. And after that amount of time, also the cork becomes uh, more friable and it's easier to be damaged. So we'll let more oxygen going through. Uh, so it, so what you're saying, Gianluca, is if we find a bottle of wine in the shipwreck in the Ionian Sea, uh, and it's a 400 years old, it's unlikely going to taste very well, very good. I will be surprised if it does. <laughs> I, I'm just going to ask a quick follow-up question here before we uh, before we let you go, Gianluca, and that's just that. How does... How does aging the wine affect the, uh, affect the flavor? How does it affect the experience of the consumer? Um, so that's uh, uh, basically um, a pretty easy question to answer because there are three main components, if we want to call them that way, uh, aromas and flavors in wine, uh, primary, secondary, and tertiary. Primary are the aromas that uh, basically um, come from the grapes mostly, uh, so fruity, floral um, type of aromas. And secondary are the ones that come from fermentations, uh, so uh, butter, creamy, this kind of aromas. And the second, the tertiary are the ones that come from aging. So over time, uh, what is going to happen that the primary aroma are going to tend to fade, and the secondary and tertiary are going to take over. So ideally, you want to drink the wine, uh, of course, based on your taste, if you like, fruitier wines, I will drink it as soon as possible um, other, because otherwise the dominant flavor are going to be um, tertiary and secondary aroma just because you have also less um, primary aroma. So the wine becomes uh, just more shifted towards secondary aroma, so nutty aroma or uh, barely aroma. Uh, but also the texture and the mouthfeel is going to change over time because over time the tendons tend to combine each other so they won't bind as much your saliva protein which makes the wine smoother over time and also um, what's going to change is the level of acidity slightly but it's going to have an impact on the wine uh, texture uh, acidity Yep. So, sorry, I was just going to say, uh, what's the best way for um, the consumer to store wine? Best way to store a wine uh, is definitely uh, in a dark place, uh, consistent temperature uh, between uh, 12 and 15 degrees, no more than that. And humidity it also plays a big role, at least 67% of humidity. Uh, which, mean, which excludes uh, well, a lot of people's houses. Well, <laughs> The, the lower level of my house uh, is uh, is pretty perfect for it. It's uh, I live in a three level uh, townhome, and the the bottom level because it sits right on the ground is very cool. And so it's I, I close all the blinds. My my wife and everybody thinks I'm crazy. They think I, I work in the dark, but it's because I want to protect the wine. I I care more about the wine. Humidity is an issue though here because we have the uh, the internal heating, and we tend to have very dry internal air. Yeah. 
anyway, Gianluca, uh, as an enophile, this topic fascinates me to no end. I could spend all day and probably all week discussing it uh, with you. So I, I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time to uh, to come on board and uh, and speak to us about it. Like I said, we. We'd love to have you on again to uh, get a little bit more into detail about the consumption side of things and uh, and ask you a few more questions. Um, before I give it over to Bill, where can we find your new wine that you're going to be releasing this year? The uh, Chablis? Be mostly direct to consumer. So uh, you have my email. Feel free to share it, and uh, it won't last long. I can tell you that. <laughs> I'll just make sure that one bottle goes to me, Chablis. Yeah, but can set aside? Excellent. That, oh, that's what beautiful. I like to hear. So uh, if uh, if our clients uh, want to acquire some wine, what's the what's the uh, contact region uh, info? Uh, so they can just uh, shoot me a text uh, 226-450-2313 or gianlucadiloro at gmail.com. Excellent. Right. Alexander? Bill? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, Jim. Look, buddy, I'm I'm kind of angry because I'm down here in America, and uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say hide in our hair of your wine. So, <laughs> but thank you for your thank you for your time. Very interesting discussion today. Very I am thirsty. It's about lunchtime. I I know where I'm going to go. Uh, but before we get out of here, uh, John and Alex, we've got Gianluca's contact information. But how do we get a hold of you if somebody's listening and wants to reach out? Absolutely. So if anybody wants to uh, to reach out to us, they can send us an email at info at medwealth.ca. That's info at med-wealth.ca. If you liked what you heard and you're not a subscriber, it's really easy. Hit the subscribe button down below. That way you won't forget. You won't have to remember where you found these guys. It gets delivered to your listening device. You're notified and you won't miss an episode. On behalf of John and Alex Sutos, thank you very much for listening to Prescribing Prosperity. We ask that if you would, rate the podcast and share it with others, because in doing so, you let everybody else know about the podcast and they can join in on the fun. On behalf of everyone at MedWealth, I'm Bill Tucker. Thank you for listening and reminding you, don't wait. Live your best day today. Thank you for listening to Prescribing Prosperity. Visit our website at med-wealth.ca. That's med-wealth.ca for more information or to connect with us for a consultation. Don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and their guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of IPC Securities Corporation. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of a qualified and licensed financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment or retirement planning. MedWealth Financial Services can provide a private consultation to help you determine the suitability of any guidance discussed on the show. 